Lord Jesus, you have uh, granted us your amazing grace. You have uh, filled this place with your spirit. And I pray, God, now that you would give us receptive hearts and that we would hear the voice only of our good shepherd. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is just so very, very good uh, to be here in this place with you. I have, uh, I have, man, oh man, I have just enjoyed it so much. It's been so fun. Uh, Amy and I have loved being with you, and we're so grateful uh, for the invitation. And in some ways, I don't want to get back on the plane. I'm not sure my head will fit, actually. Uh, y'all have been so gracious uh, to me. Last week, uh, as you may know, uh, March 2nd, uh, was Dr. Seuss's birthday. Now, did you know this? Uh, I think if I did the math right, he would have been 114. Uh, one of the greatest uh, children's authors of all time, and really maybe one of the great artists uh, of all time. He was, in fact, I saw it in the paper this morning, and I'm sure it's because of, of, his, uh, of his birthday last week, but in the USA Today, five of the top 20 best-selling books of last week were Dr. Seuss. Not bad for a 114-year-old. Certainly a culture shifter, uh, Dr. Seuss, appropriately celebrated uh, by elementary schools uh, all over. And one of my kids brought home a few Dr. Seuss quotes. And one of them uh, was from, I think, one of maybe the last books that that Dr. Seuss wrote, Oh, the Places You'll Go. I can remember my uh, principal from high school reading this at my graduation. Uh, And the line that my child brought home said this, Today you are you, and that's truer than true. There's no one alive who's more youer than you. No one alive who's more youer than you. Let me ask you, uh, what makes you you? What makes you you? What things come together to make up who you understand yourself to be? These, things, these can be positive things, right? My, um, I'm happy about my career. I'm a civic volunteer. I, I'm well thought of by my friends and my peers in the community. I'm financially comfortable. I have well-adjusted children. Good for you. Uh, um, uh, Or or they could be uh, negative things, uh, things that uh, make up our self-understanding, like, you know, I I never seem to measure up. My children are a disappointment, which which means I'm a disappointment as a parent. Or you might have a secret vice or addiction. You may uh, be a victim of some sort. Uh, What makes you, you? One of Frank Limehouse's favorite New Yorker cartoons, Uh, you probably have either seen it or heard him talk about it. At some point, this well-dressed couple is standing in front of a door with a bottle of wine. They're obviously about to go into a dinner party, and the wife leans over to her husband and says, just don't be yourself, right? (laughs) Just don't be yourself. And that's funny because it just, it subverts one of the most pervasive and seemingly incontrovertible messages of, of our current culture, which is what? Just be yourself. Just be yourself. Look inside and find who your heart tells you you really are. I mean, that was, and that's, that's what Dr. Seuss was saying, right? To tell someone not to be their self, that's it, a major violation of one's person according to to our cultural narrative. It's a negative way to say 
perhaps that one of our culture's highest ideals, in fact so high that it ought never to be questioned, is that the, individual's, uh, the individual has the right to self-authenticate their own identity. That's the cultural narrative. The truest revelation of who I am is how I feel about myself. I had a friend in college that wanted to stop smoking, and he said to me, you know, I know I should stop smoking. I want to stop smoking, but the problem is that I see myself as a smoker. And to lose that is to lose a huge part of myself. I thought that was really insightful. When you close your eyes and you look in your mind's mirror, what makes you you? What shapes your identity? You might even go a step further and ask how closely your uh, external identity, that is uh, what you make sure that other people see about you, how closely that matches your internal identity, how you perceive yourself. What makes you you? Well, probably by now, most of you have stopped listening to what I'm saying, and you're thinking about all those things that make you youer than anybody else, and you may be con- congratulating yourselves uh, for the positives, or um, beating yourself up for the negatives, or maybe both. But just for a minute, come off the ledge. And I want us to think about our identity. Think about the real internal you in the light of Jesus and his gospel. Let me read uh, for you a a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. He says something really amazing. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right away, we see that Paul was not a southerner, right? You and I, we have much more uh, subtle ways to brag, don't we? But Paul just, he just comes right right out and gives us the whole resume of his righteousness. This whole list of his pedigree and his accomplishment. Now, some of these things may not seem important to us, but they would have been very important to the Jews. Circumcised on the eighth day of the royal tribe of Benjamin, born to religiously zealous parents, a fanatically detailed keeper of the law, so zealous for his faith that he sought to destroy any challengers, and therefore he was a violent persecutor of the church. He says, in a way that may seem shocking to us, if anyone else has confidence, has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. That was his identity before he became a Christian. His resume, everything that he had worked for in his life, in his young career, he had built his case. It was what made him Paul, or in that case, Saul, before he met Jesus. And we get that, right? 
We, we look in our mind's mirror and we are what we do or don't do. We are what we accomplish or what we don't achieve. We are what has happened to us and we can't let go of or what we hold dear and what we won't let go of. A couple of years ago, the New York Times interviewed former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And the article says this, pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, Bloomberg said with a grin, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I am not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. He patted his resume. And he assumes that if there is a God, then this God is surely as impressed with him as he is. I don't know if you have achieved such bald arrogance, but like Bloomberg, we often assume that God feels about us the way that we feel about us. So if we're impressed with ourselves, we generally assume that God is too. Or if we are down on ourselves, we generally assume that God is too. Paul says, I had Bloomberg beat, hands down, smoking cessation. Give me a break. If anybody else, else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I was righteous in every way, by every standard. It was held by everyone that mattered. But then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Do you remember this? He's riding uh, to Damascus to seek out and imprison Christians. Remember, violent persecution. And the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting those Christians. Why are you persecuting me? Imagine for a minute that you have worked your whole life to get $50 million into your bank account. $50 $50 million, and you, you know, you've been making good progress, and you can see that if you keep going the way that you've been going, that things are, uh, you're going to achieve your goal. And you like to look at those numbers and see this, the, the arrows are moving in the right direction, so you log on, uh, into your account online as you do every day, and you suddenly realize that the sum total of all your deposits that you worked so hard for was not $50 million dollars. It was actually zero. Zero dollars. Not, not that it was stolen. Not that there was a crash. But that all that work, all the effort that you had put in, it just simply didn't amount to anything. And in fact, it turned out it was worse than that. You, you're actually $50 million in debt. Can you imagine in that moment the, the lump in the throat, the punch in the gut, your work, your legacy, your standing in the community, your assets, all built on monopoly money. But in the same moment, the banker comes. Oh, gosh, you know what the, you know the banker is going to say. This is the banker who should be closing your accounts and turning you over to the authorities, but... The banker puts into your account not $50 million, but $50 billion. Into your account with your name on it. More than you could ever have worked for. More than you could ever have earned in your whole life. It's yours. It's free and clear. Can you imagine? That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. 
righteous resume, Paul came face to face with Jesus. True righteousness. The author of righteousness. Paul realized that his own righteousness was bankrupt. Tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless under the law, worthless. Counted as loss, counted as rubbish. Paul says this to the Philippians. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. It'd be sort of like if, like, like the only art that you've ever seen or ever even heard existed was, was crayon and coloring books. And, and you're the best... I mean, you're the best crayon artist around. You always color inside the lines. And you walk into the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You see true beauty for the first time. Paul has always prided himself on coloring inside the lines, gloried in the assumption that his bank account, the bank account of his righteousness was full to overflowing. But on the road to Damascus, he was confronted with Jesus Christ. The very one whose name he hated. Whose followers he imprisoned and put to death. And in Jesus, he saw what true beauty and true riches and true righteousness looked like for the first time. He was humbled. Humbled, to be sure. But you know, there's no account in any of Paul's writings uh, of him being devastated. No anger that God wouldn't accept his hard work. Because Jesus Christ had made the deposit. His body broken, his blood poured out on the cross. His full beauty and righteousness credited to Paul's account. Free and clear. To your account. To my account. And Paul never looked back. Right? Jesus became his heart's treasure. His Lord, His pleasure, His singular ambition, His joy, His wealth. Jesus was not an ideology, not a new set of rules, or even a means to a happier life. He said, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Paul remained totally submitted Now, even years after the road to Damascus, as he wrote to his friends in Philippi, you know, for Paul, it wasn't like like he simply realized that he'd been working on the wrong thing. Like he'd been working over here on the law, but he stopped that and he started working on being submitted to Christ. Like it wasn't wasn't that. He was just smitten with glory. He'd been working on his own glory, but then he met glory. It's like a magnet. 
who's so drawn to Christ, not, not out of duty, not out, out, of, out of obligation. It was just, there was no or else like there had been as a Pharisee. Jesus simply outshined everything else. And so friends, there is not going to be an, a should in this sermon. No, no finger wagging, no stop working over there and start being submitted to Christ. The only thing for, that I want for us to see is what we have built our identities on. And to see that in the light of Jesus' beauty and His grace. So look at yourself in your mind's mirror. And as you do that, I want you to listen to this description of Jesus from the first chapter of Hebrews. The author says this. He says, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's who loves you and knows you. Or listen to this from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's who knows you and loves you. See, Paul came face to face with this glorious Christ, and his identity changed. His padded resume turned to sand because he began to love Christ more than he loved anything else that he had built for himself. I don't know what makes you youer than anyone else in your own mind. I mean, I know that some of you have achieved amazing things. And I know that some of you have endured terrible heartache. But I also know that when the light of our personal Savior who holds the universe together with the word of His power, who is Himself the radiance of the glory of God, when He, Jesus, when He shines on what we feel is truest about ourselves, two things happen. The first thing is that the things that brought us glory once before lose their luster kind of like shining a flashlight in broad daylight. It's not that it's not working. It just just doesn't seem as bright when the sun is shining. That's the first thing. The things that used to bring us glory lose their luster. But the second thing is this. The sad things, the failures, the mistakes, the losses, they all get redeemed. They look a little brighter in his light. It's not that they weren't terribly, terribly dark. It's just that somehow those dark things have a particular way of reflecting his light when we let him shine on them. Like Paul, our our identity changes in Christ. Not by our efforts so much as, as by his bright glory, his beauty, the light of his love. So what makes you you in his light more than anything else he does amen